Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 29th, 2020, and this is show number 812. Well, I had a nice, relaxing Thanksgiving weekend. I hope you guys all stayed safe and and uh, maybe got to have a little bit of fun. I know I gained two pounds, so apparently I ate well enough. This week, Rod Simmons of the SMR Podcast joins us on Chit Chat Across the Pond to talk about our tips and tricks for doing effective screencasting. So it's kind of a back and forth between the two of us. We both put down notes of everything we thought about, and uh, it was really, really a fun episode. We started by going through some more strategic ideas on how to get your messages across with a screencast, and then we dug into some of the techniques and tools we use to edit our screencasts. We've got an outline of our talking points in the show notes and some links to the various tools we discussed. Be sure to look for Chit Chat Across the Pond Lite in your podcatcher of choice, or you can find it over at podfeet.com. You know, I love to tell a nice long story before I get into the point of my reviews, but I'm going to have to dig deep on this one. Don't worry, though. I'm up to the challenge. Some of you may have heard this story from me before, but it's such a great story. I'm going to tell it again. One day back in 2014, Steve and I were puttering on our computers as we are wont to do when we saw the lights dim and both of our computer speakers started making noise. Sensing an imminent power outage, I unplugged my laptop from my monitor that was delivering it power, and we immediately shut down both of the Drobos we were using at the time. One of them was on an uninterruptible power supply, also known as a UPS, and the other was on a plain old surge protector. Steve's iMac was on a UPS that we had inherited from Tim Verporten, which should have protected it, but he shut his iMac down as a precaution. Sometimes when the power goes out, it's the surge when it comes back that damages your equipment. I went downstairs to make lunch while the power sorted itself out. Figured it'll come back up. We don't have power outages very often, and when we do, it's usually pretty quick. I turned on the overhead fluorescent lights in the kitchen, and they came on really bright. I don't mean a little brighter than usual. I mean really, really bright. Then they started making a loud noise, sort of a crackle combined with a hum like... (laughs) It was really rather frightening. I glanced over to the family room, and I noticed that the lights in that room were unusually dim rather than bright. I went to the stairwell, and as it was near Christmas, we had a garland with lights up the banister, and those lights were really dim as well. Steve then hollered down from upstairs that he smelled smoke. I'd like to say that I immediately grabbed a fire extinguisher before going up after him, but I did not. We had trouble isolating from what room the smoke smell was coming, And that was because every room had something smoldering. The smell was every single surge protector we had giving up its life. Nothing was continuing to burn, but the smoke smell of fried electronics was lovely. I'd like to point out that our very expensive Nest smoke detectors never went off. As Steve is our resident electrical engineer, he got busy with his voltmeter to try to diagnose what the heck was going on in our house. In the United States, you should see 120 volts AC at your outlets. Some houses, including ours, have two 120-volt AC lines coming in that are split between the two sides of the house, but when combined, they would form 240 volts. Steve checked the voltage in the kitchen, and it was 200 volts AC instead of 120. When he checked the family room where the lights were dim, it was 40 volts AC. Remember, we're supposed to have 240 split 50-50, not 200 volts and 40 volts. We eventually found out that our entire block was taken out by the same failure. 
On a power pole on the street behind us, an electric company worker some time ago had replaced a little metal cup on a transformer that was supposed to be concave down, but he inadvertently put it concave up. The cup was supposed to protect the neutral line coming out of the transformer from water, but instead it was collecting water. The job of the neutral line is to provide that equal split of 240 volts AC to form the two 120 volt AC lines going into the houses on our block. Over a period of time, moisture collected in that cup and eventually rusted out the connection that made the neutral. This allowed the neutral line between the two intended 120 volt lines to kind of float and form a different neutral with two unequal power levels going to the houses, including ours. Now, the effect of this unfortunate error was that it blew out most of the electronics and appliances in about a dozen homes. The electric company was very good about paying for repairs and replacements as needed, but it was a giant mess for a lot of people. We lost our garage door opener, our microwave oven, which was built into our regular oven, our intercom system, and a few other things. Now, you might be wondering what I could possibly be reviewing today that would compel me to retell you this story. Let's go back to the smoke-smelling rooms in our house after the disaster struck. I said that the surge protectors in our house gave up their lives. The important part of this story is that every single device that was plugged into a surge protector survived when those things blew, and every single thing we lost was not on a surge protector. This was a lesson for us, and now any power device in our house that's worth more than, I don't know, like $100 is on a surge protector. Steve's even screwed one into the ceiling of our garage for the new garage door opener. Our intercom system's little power supply in Steve's closet has one too now. And of course, TVs, refrigerators, and all other electronics have them as well. Unfortunately, the power line going to our new oven is hardwired, so we were not able to put a surge protector on that one. Both of our computers and our Drobo and our Synology and our Mac Mini Plex server and our printers are all on UPSs now. But there's one place I've been remiss in keeping my stuff safe, and that is the random things I plug in at my desk. I've been using a cruddy old extension cord with only two outlets sitting on top of my desk, and I plug in, you know, spare laptops and other devices, but there were never enough outlets. My priceless Dyson fan is always plugged in there, and often a phone or an Apple Watch gets some juice from that uh, little uh, extension cord. Recently, my buddy Ron, who has gotten the wise cam religion and now buys incre- the increasingly diverse products they sell. Did you know Wise now sells a robot vacuum too? Anyway, Ron bought a couple of their surge protectors and gave me one. It's pretty slick with three AC outlets and three USB-A outlets in a standard long white box. But you know that with a laptop charger plugged in, I can't really get to all three AC outlets. Heck, the power plug for my trusty Dyson fan is so big, I can't plug anything next to it either. It's not a bad device, but I'm still swapping things in out of it all of the time because I only have two usable AC outlets. Well, this week, Excel, the company that makes one of the Thunderbolt 3 docks I tested and liked a lot a long time ago, they offered to send me their unusual surge protector that they call the Power Cutie. I jumped at the chance to give it a spin. Now, I know surge protectors aren't supposed to be fun, but the Power Cutie is fun. It's a three and a half inch diameter ball that comes in red, baby blue, yellow, white, and even pink. I should mention that it doesn't roll around on your desk because the bottom is flat. The spherical shape is not just to be fun. There's actually a practical reason it's shaped that way. On the back uh, and the two sides are three AC outlets. And because they have their own dedicated sides, you can plug in three giant power supplies and they don't interfere with each other. 
The Power Cutie also sports four USB-A ports, two on the top and two on the front. I took a photo of the Wise Search Protector to show how messy it looked with a bunch of stuff plugged into it and show how I could use only two of the three outlets at a time. I figured this nice sphere would look really sleek and organized in comparison. While it does allow me to plug in more devices with three usable AC outlets, once you plug that much stuff in, it's still messy looking. Now, I happen to be working on my backup laptop testing out macOS Big Sur, so I plugged in the giant 100-watt Apple power supply into the Power Cutie. The poor thing tilted right over on its side. But that's not really a fair test, so I fetched the sleek and thin Eggtronic 65-watt GAN charger, and the Power Cutie had no problem standing up and looking adorable. On the bottom of the Power Cutie, there's a slot where you could hang it on the wall, which might be cool, but it might look a bit odd to have a pink or baby blue sphere stuck to your wall. But, hey, you know, it depends on how you roll out. I don't want to judge. Now, I know you guys love it when I dig deep into specs, so I did a bit of research on how good this search protector is. I read the Underwriters Laboratory, or UL, spec 1449, which governs search protector devices, or SPDs, you know, as they're known in the industry. They're also known as transient voltage surge suppressors, and that's an important distinction. Normally, you want a surge protector to save your devices during a power spike, like a lightning strike, for example. That's a transient surge. Those transient surges send very high voltage down the line, so you want your surge protector to stop any surges above a certain voltage. On good surge protectors, they will have a label showing voltage protection rating, or VPR. That's from the UL spec. VPR is a, a measure I'm sorry, of the maximum voltage a surge protector will let through to connected devices. So the lower the VPR, the better the protection for your devices from transient power surges. I looked at the ratings on three surge protectors in my house. A cheap one I got from a hardware store, the one from Wise that my buddy Ron gave me, and the Excel Power Cutie. The cheap one from the hardware store had no VPR rating on it at all. It might do the job, but maybe not. The Wise has a VPR of 1.2 kilovolts, and the Power Cutie has a VPR of 400 volts. That means the Wise surge protector will let through three times higher voltage surge than the Power Cutie. Now, unfortunately, I can't tell you how much voltage is okay for your devices. Is anything above 400 volts going to blow out your garage door opener? Is it okay to only limit to above 1.2 kilovolts for your refrigerator? I don't know. All I can tell you is the Excel Power Cutie is capable of protecting your devices from that higher voltage. When we had our big power mess, we only had cheap hardware store surge protectors, so why did they protect our devices when we had our power disaster? Remember, we had 200 volts on one side and 40 volts on the other side of the, our house, so we didn't have the power spike that surge protectors are normally made for. We had a sustained high power situation. But that sustained power level was nowhere near as high, uh, high enough to have tripped the surge protectors, according to the VPR we've been talking about. So what happened? Steve and I noodled this a bit, and we think that if the voltage is too high for too long, but not high enough to trip the surge protector, then the current begins to climb. And it may have caused the surge protectors to actually act like a fuse and burn themselves out. In my research on the topic, I found something that really made me smile. In the Wikipedia entry on surge protectors, it says, quote, A long-term surge, lasting seconds, minutes, or hours, caused by power transformer failure such as a lost, neutral, or other power company error are not protected by transient protectors. Now, I swear, Steve and I did not edit the Wikipedia page to say that.
Okay, back to the PowerQt for a few more details about it. The three USB-A ports are 5 volts at 2.4 amps, which means they'll give you 12 watts of power each, which is about what a 10-inch iPad wants in order to charge. The power cord on the QD is a generous 6 feet long, which is really great. It's always tempting to plug a surge protector into an extension cord if its own cord is too short, but that's a really bad idea because it defeats the purpose of using a surge protector. While the Wise Surge Protector is only $10, they're known for being a low-price leader, it has a very short cable, it doesn't fit as many power adapters, doesn't have as many USB ports, and the USB ports it does have are 2.1 amps max, as compared to the PowerQt's 2.4 amps. Not a bad device for $10, but it's not as good as the PowerQt. The Excel PowerQt is $35 on the Excel website, but it's $30 on Amazon and even less expensive at $28 at Best Buy with free delivery. I do have to tell you though, the pink is not an option at Best Buy for $28. The bottom line is the Excel PowerQt is a beast of a surge protector in a unique design that allows you to plug in more devices with higher protection than a standard surge protector. With its funky and playful look and a long cable, it will likely protect your devices from disaster. The only downside to this ball-shaped design is it's probably not the easiest shape for a travel surge protector. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago, I talked about an app called Folge, which was the replacement for Clarify that hopefully will allow us to make tutorials or guides, as the developer Alexi says. Now, I'm saying that you may remember because I didn't actually remember that I had already uh, talked to you about Folge. But luckily, John Ormsby, also known as Nasanut in our live chat room at podfee.com slash live, notified me that I had already talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But it's okay because I have an update about this and I wanted to tell you about it. My friend Pat Dengler bought Folge after I told her about it, and she ran into a problem where the app didn't ask for permission to record the screen. If the app doesn't ask for permission, there's no way for the user to manually add it to the allowed list. I encouraged her to write to Alexi because, as I told you when I did the recording before, he's so very responsive. He and I had just been emailing me when she wrote to me, so I knew it was a good time for him over in Germany. She wrote to him, and she immediately got this response. Thank you for letting me know about this. I have just yesterday refactored some code around this specific permission request, and it appears that I do not ask for permissions properly. I'll send you an updated version of the app in about 90 minutes. Would it be possible for you to test it for me? Okay, seriously, have you ever gotten uh, an answer like that from a developer? Obviously, she said yes, and she explained her background as a certified Apple consultant. 33 minutes later, he wrote this back to her. Since Allison featured me in her blog and podcast, I've met so many nice new people. Wow, getting feedback from someone like you with your experience would be just great. I've fixed the issue. Please try this new 1.4.2 version. Now, he also said, if you wonder what was wrong, I released 1.4.1 yesterday with fixes around security for Big Sur, and it looks like I deleted the line of code that was asking for capturing permissions, which actually adds apps to that list. As it turns out, Alexi was super lucky to have someone like Pat find the problem because he would have had headaches all day from sad users if she hadn't written. But you know what? I give him tons of credit for being so incredibly responsive to her and thereby reaping those benefits. And I thought it was really, really great that he gave her the reason why it went wrong. I thought that was really cool. So if you have any ideas for improvement for Folge, please let Alexi know by emailing him at hello at folge.me. 
Now, in my conversations with Alexi, I'd asked him two critical questions. What does Folge mean? F-O-L-G-E. And what's the story behind the logo for Folge? It's a yellow and black car with a follow me sign on top of it. Alexi explained to me that Folge, which is a German word, when it's used in context, it means an episode, sequence, or series of things in order. That's a perfect name for an app designed to help you convey a series of steps to be followed. As for the yellow, black, and check, uh, yellow and black checkered follow me car, in Europe, evidently these are cars which guide aircraft after landing into their bays. I'd never heard of such a thing. So not only did we get an intriguing app that may fill the hole in our hearts left by Clarify, but I learned something new. After I posted my article about Folge, Alexi did something lovely. He sent me a PayPal donation. Now, I asked our Slack community for advice about this at podfeet.com slash Slack because I was, I was really torn on whether to accept the money. If I accepted the money, would I continue to keep a critical eye on the product as it develops, or would I maybe be a little bit more lenient as a result? I think I could be objective, but you know what? It just felt funny. In the end, I returned the donation, and I explained to Alexi why, and I said, if you really feel like helping, why don't you just give away a copy of Folge to a Nocilla Castaway? He did better than that. He gave away two copies, and I posted in our Facebook and Slack communities that the first person in each that said, pick me, would get the free software. Dave Ginsburg in Facebook and Mark Pauly in Slack were the happy recipients. Alexi is a very cool guy who loves feedback, loves our excitement for Folge, and I thank him for the support that he's given us to so far. So you know what? Shoot him an email at hello at Folge.com. Well, I've got a special guest on today. This is uh, We're going to be talking to Joe LaGreca from Big Net Online, who uh, is a personal friend of mine. He listens to the show. We've hung out a lot at CES, and uh, he actually suggested coming on the show to talk about something really cool. So, hey, Joe, thanks for coming on. Hey, Allison. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, we're going to give a little bit of a setup here. Um, what Joe has to talk about could not come at a better time. Uh, it's not something new necessarily, but with us uh, all pondering whether it's time to go to Big Sur and when is it time and how to figure out whether our apps are ready and everything. Uh, I think this is going to really uh, really be the right time for this conversation. So you wanted to start with uh, with what Bart always says? Stay patched and stay secured. <laughs> So why is that relevant? What is it you're going to talk about here? Well, there's an app that I like called Mac, Up, Mac Updater. And what it does is it, it goes through the apps on your computer and checks them against a database to make sure that they are up to date and then helps you easily update them. So this, this would be kind of like what the Mac App Store does, but it does it for non-Mac Store app apps? Right, right. So the OS updates are great. Those happen pretty near automatically. But all the apps on your computer, how can you be sure they're up to date? You know, only when you launch them, sometimes they'll check and tell you they're out of date. But you want all your apps up to date all the time. And so this is a great tool to help you with that. So I've noticed recently <laughs> we're getting a lot of updates, right? Everything's on fire right now getting updated. Yes. Everything's trying to get updated for Big Sur. Yeah, and um, I only just started, I, I don't 
reboot very often. So I think that's why uh, when uh, I went ahead and downloaded Mac Updater to uh, see what Joe was talking about, and uh, I think it found 51 apps it thinks are out of date. I'm not sure I agree with 100% of those, but and some of them are teeny, teeny, tiny little updates, but still, um, I, I've, I've clearly not been keep being as patched and secure as maybe I could be. Yeah, so there... There was another app out there called Mac Update, and that's just, um, it, it was a subscription. It was a very pretty application, but it, it was a subscription application, and it was quite expensive. It's $20 for six months or, or $40 for the year. Um, but after looking around a little bit, I found another one, and the names are so close that it's a little bit tricky, but the one that I'm going to talk about today is called Mac Updater with an R. Um, it's oh, from... So this answers a question before you get too deep into it. This answers a question. Dave Hamilton has been talking about Mac Updater for a while on the Mac Geek Gab. And I remember going out and going, oh, let me go take a look. And I found this thing and I'm like, God, this is really expensive. I mean, I'll, I'll click an update on the apps for that kind of price. And I wasn't, it didn't look like what he was talking about either. D- does Mac Update still exist? Mac Update still does exist and it's still very pretty and very polished. Okay, and it does the same kind of function, but maybe not as not necessary to pay that kind of money. Yeah, this is just uh, this is another way to do it for. And and the other thing with Mac Updater is that it's not a subscription; it's a one-time purchase. And how much does it cost? It costs ten dollars. Ten dollar, ten dollar. Oh yeah, we were looking at the price, and it looks like it's ten euro or ten dollars. They don't seem to worry about doing conversions. It's just ten euro, ten dollars, whatever it takes. Right, it's based out of a, a little company, uh, fifty miles south of Italy, Malta. Hmm. Um, and the founder and CEO Albert Julian Mayer, really nice guy. I can email him, and he get gets back to me usually in about a day. Wow. Um. Yeah. And yeah, the company's it, called it, Core Code. I think I cut you off right when you were going to say it. So it's cordcode.io. Yes. And that's also their website. So the, the premise of Mac Updater is it's, it's pretty simple. You just uh, you install it. It scans all the applications on your computer and, um, and then can show you a list of the applications that needed to be updated. Um, and then you can go through, and in the GUI, you can click update on each one. And if it's not, if it's a more standard Mac app that you just drag into the applications folder, it can generally update it itself just by clicking the update button. If it's uh, more of like a Microsoft Office type of application where it has to run through an installer, it can it will warn you and it will kick off the installer, but then you have to go through and finish the install to update it that way manually. So, so it actually does launch the installer for you? Yes. Okay, that's yep. cool. So I, I'm looking at the buttons. That some say update app, and some say upgrade app. So the upgrade apps must be the one that the ones that have to inst- uh, bring up the installer. Um, that I'm not sure about. That might actually be. I think that's a major version update. So I think that's jumping between a major version. <laughs> I'm looking at one of the ones on my list. It, you know, uh, Joe was laughing at me a little bit of how much my stuff was not updated, but Twisted Wave says 1.23.1 is what I'm running. So 1.23.1. The newest one, it says, is 24.3. I I guess it's been a while. I mean, maybe there should be a button that says, are you sure you actually still need this? Because I could just throw it away for you. If you're that far behind, (laughs) you actually care. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, I ha- I ran into a couple of those myself. I'm also finding apps that I swear I have no memory of installing. Like, or wow, or what about the so- ones that? You don't even know what they are. You're like, gosh, what what does that app even do? I don't even know. I have one called iLock License Manager, I-L-O-K. No idea what it is. Never, I have no memory. I launched it to see what it was. No idea what it was. And I'm only a little bit behind too. So apparently I installed it fairly recently. So anyways, this application can can run in your um, your system bar up at the top of your screen and you can set it up to to automatically check for updates so mine just runs in the background it starts at boot time and every day i think it's in the morning or around noon or so it does a scan of the computer and then it shows me with a little badge in the icon how many apps need to be updated and then i can go in there and and click update um so I'm looking at the app icon display. You have a choice of menu bar, dock, and menu bar, dock, and nowhere. <laughs> I don't know what nowhere does. <laughs> maybe maybe it gives you a a, a notification because you I know you can turn on notifications with it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the one thing that I wish it had that it doesn't currently is an update all button. So like right now, you've got a whole bunch of apps that you got to update. It's kind of a pain to have to go through and click on each one. Um, and I, I wrote to the developer in December of 2019, and he said that he had gotten interest in this from other people, and he was going to work on it. And he actually wrote me back in March of 2020 and let me know that it now has a, a command line trigger to update to update all the apps. Oh, So really? I just wrote... A little shell script that I keep on my desktop that when I see there's more than a couple of them in there, I just run the shell script and it, it uh, goes through and tries to update them all. I can see how that uh, might be useful after you get things cleaned up. Uh, like at, my, at the point I'm sitting at with 55 unupdated apps, I'm thinking I don't want to update all because I'm looking at these going, I want to get rid of that iLock license manager. I found some black magic stuff. That got installed when I installed a different Blackmagic app. So I want to clean up. I wouldn't want that. But when you get it clean where it's only a couple apps every you know week or so, then I could see that being handy. Right. So sometimes I'll if, if there's an app that needs to be updated that I don't need anymore, I'll go and delete it. You can actually right-click on it, and I think it'll show in Finder. And then you can just go delete it. And then you can go back to the Mac Updater app and right-click on it and say Rescan. And if you deleted it, it'll leave the list. And also, if you updated it outside of Mac Updater, you can rescan it, and it will uh, it will disappear from the list because it now knows that it's updated. Oh, okay, okay, that makes more sense then. Because I was noticing if I did an an upgrade or an update on some of these apps, they didn't disappear from the list. But once you do them, you. Uh, but sometimes they did seem to update. I didn't quite see the. Well, I think if you update it from within the app, if it's one of those simple ones where you click the update button, Mm -hmm. it will disappear right away because it knows that it did it. Okay. But if it's one of those ones where you have to update it outside of the app, it doesn't know until it rescans it the next time. So you can force a manual rescan by right-clicking on it and rescan the app, or you can just wait until it does this daily scan. It'll disappear the next day. I see. Okay, so I just did one that said update app. In fact, why not cha- why not install applications while recording a podcast episode? Um, 
So I'm doing uh, Intel Power Gadget, which I guess I'll have to remember not to not bring along if I get the uh, M1 Mac next. But uh, uh, I'm running the update on that. So that one said update app, not one of the upgrade app ones. And it did launch an installer. So uh, I think the installer ones are the ones that say update. Or maybe like you say, maybe it is the, the big versions are, are upgrade. Oh, I think he's right. Don't listen to me. So yeah, like MAMP is at 5.7, it wants 6.1. That one says upgrade. Uh, iStatistica, which I got to go find out what that is, 4.6 going to 5. That one says upgrade app. Yeah, so I think you're right. Don't listen and then to me, the, people. There's the update app, and then there's the manual update. And I think the manual update is the one that launches the manual installer. And the update app should, should uh, be able to install itself. Oh, you're right. Okay, now we see a manual update. Okay. Man, I got a lot of apps. I don't know what they are. <laughs> well, this is good. This will help you clean them up. Yeah, what the heck is Luna? I mean, I know what Luna Display is, but this is Luna. I don't think that's the same thing. This is funny. Now I'm feeling real sloppy. Like, I don't know what I'm doing on this, on this Mac. <laughs> so I, I actually just emailed the developer again the other day and asked him again for an update all button. Um, and he wrote back and he said, he's not ready to go into specifics yet, but they're looking ways to improve that part. And he says, he thinks I'll like it when they release it. So it sounds like something like that is coming. So he gave you the command line, uh, tool without, uh, putting in the, uh, the official button for everybody else. Yeah. He gave me the command line tool, right. Um, well, he gave that to me previously. And then I asked him again, I told him again, uh, when I just contacted him recently, I said, you know, it really would still be nice if you guys had an update all button in there. Mm-hmm. And and he, he wrote back and said that they're they're working on something and he'll let me know. <laughs> so, cool. So if you. Um, so he doesn't publish that update all command line command, right? Um, it may be in the FAQ on their website. I asked about it because I was actually interested in using it. For people, I, I manage a few Macs remotely, and so I was thinking about using this to keep their software up to date. And oh, I was talking okay. to him about ways to do that. Okay. Okay, that's pretty cool. I noticed that it also does show you, you can see all apps, and then hide Mac App Store apps, show all apps, hide all unupdatable apps. That's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and then you can filter by just outdated apps. Yeah, and you can even hide some apps. So if there's some apps that you don't want to update on purpose, you can yeah. right-click on it and tell it to uh, just to ignore that app. Okay. I have a bunch of installations of MAMP. That would be an interesting one to look at for possibly ignoring those because I think I did that on purpose. <laughs> so how does yeah. what about Mac Updater itself? You said it works off a database. Where how do you how does that get updated? Uh. That is the secret sauce. I don't know how that works. Um, but I mean, does it get updated, it, or do you have to remember to update Mac Updater? Oh no, no, no! It 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 does it does it all by itself. Um, Mac Updater will update it. it. It checks itself to see if it needs to be updated. But then the database and the list of applications that it's updating get updated automatically. Okay. However, okay. however it does it, I'm not sure how it does that. Okay. Oh, I see here in the settings, update Mac updater itself. <laughs> word for word, what I was just asking. So you can have a check every day, two days, every week, every month, never check for updates or check now. Huh? I think, I think I've got mine set to check, uh, check every day. 
Wow, there's also like nine, eight or nine uh, uh, notifications you can choose from to schedule scan uh, or notification on schedule scan if it found an update. Wow, lots of them. So I guess if you have it set to, to no menu bar app and no uh, dock app, then that's why it would uh, you'd want these notifications that you might get. Like if there's an app update found, you want to get a notification. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that sounds like it. Yeah, so mine's mine's down to saying thirty six now. Joe, are you excited? <laughs> <laughs> You're getting there. Bart'll be happy. Yeah, so I did notice another thing. There's um in you talked about the the uh the one we don't want to get. I'm not gonna say its name over and over again because people get confused. In Mac, Mac updater, it is I think it's pretty enough. I mean it's just basically a list. It shows you the application name, installed version, newest version, and then a button to update. But it also has an an eye there, and all of my eyes are blue except one of them that's red, and that's one where I had deleted it because I said I don't even know what that is, and I deleted it. So now I right clicked on it, rescanned, and now it's disappeared. So if you okay. do delete them, you'll be able to see the ones that are still you know sitting there waiting for you, just in case that you need to rescan. Mm-hmm. And then there's cool. a force a scan of all apps now too, and full documentation from within the app. Oh, this is this is pretty cool for ten bucks. Yeah, I was th- I was thinking it's a real bargain because it solves a real big problem. Like, you know, your your operating system gets its patches and updates, and your app store apps will, can get their updates. But what about all the third party apps that you install outside of the app store? And this does this does a really good job for ten bucks. Yeah. Now, if it did my homebrew apps, we'd really be on top of something, right? Yeah. Um, uh, actually, it uses brew somewhere. If you click the little eye next to the the apps, it brings up like an informational box, and it does like a brew cask. So maybe that's part of his secret that he's oh. using to to check for updates. Yeah. Now, my when I tap on the eye, I'm getting a a, a system beep, as though I have some other window open. Oh, Mine maybe, is, you, but yeah. I don't. I just. Uh, just look for everything, and I don't see anything else open. Yeah, you know, I did the four-fingered swipe up, so I'm not yeah. really sure why that is. Um, yeah, that that's kind of interesting. Um, one thing that, yeah, brew, boy, that's tough if they are using homebrew, because then that gets real weird. Uh, things are getting real strange over in there. Um one of the things I would suggest is when people look at this is do pay attention to what it's saying. Don't just go click, 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 click. Obviously my advice would be to delete the things that you don't know what they are. Um, But the other thing is in some cases it's telling me things that's that aren't quite right. Like it wants me to update feeder to 3.7.5, but I'm running version four. So, but I think I may be, well, the, the, the app doesn't say it's beta, but I think I have a pre-release version. So maybe it doesn't know about it. And it's just like, this isn't the same number. So I'm going to give you the latest one in the database, but you do want to, you know, use your head when you press the button. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too, is like I said, the developer is very responsive and he does appreciate when you email and let him know these, these app errors so he can fix it in his database. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's cool. I do have to say some of these vendors really need to change their numbering schemes. I, unfortunately, I've already done Chrome, but Chrome is like a, a 28-digit <laughs> version number. Like, yeah. You could tell nerds wrote the, uh, the version numbers. And Microsoft Teams, too. I'm on 1.3.00.18164. 
but I really should be on 1.3.00.28778. I mean, obviously, I need to get on that right away, right? (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with these people? Yep. Well, this is really cool. I like that it solves a real problem. It solves it for hardly any money, like you say, for for ten bucks um, one time with the responsive developer. And I, I got to say, this is why I like small developers better because you can actually talk to them. Yeah, yeah, I like being able to email them whenever I have a question or a suggestion or anything like that. He always gets back to me. Real nice guy too. Oh, very very cool. All right. Well, uh, this is nifty. If people wanted to chat with you about this or any kind of contact, do you have a way you would like them or do you want to just tell them all to go away and leave you alone? You don't want to talk to anybody. Oh, they can email me. My email address is joe at bignetonline.com. Bignetonline.com. All right. Well, very cool. Thanks for coming on. This is a, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a chit chat, but it gave us some, uh, some interesting stuff to talk about. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks, Allison. Well, I sure had fun uh, talking to Joe about Mac Updater, and I have to tell you, I have been updating apps like crazy with that, and I actually got a notification the other day that I had zero left to update, and now it says six again. But I'll, uh, I'll try to keep these things up to date. Well, last week I mentioned that one of the ways you can help support the podcast is through a one-time donation via PayPal. This week, Jose Garcia and Thomas Barrow both took me up on that idea. For the next quarter, every time you listen to the NoCillaCast, I want you to notice that the audio levels are great. No matter who's talking into the show, you can hear everyone without turning the volume up and down constantly while listening. And from show to show, notice the consistently high volume of the shows. It's because of Jose and Thomas's donations that I was able to pay for three months of Auphonic Leveler, which does the loudness and leveling magic just for you. So thank you from me, and more importantly, from the audience for your kind donations to help make the show better. If you guys would like to be a hero like Jose and Thomas, you can donate in a one-time donation at podfeet.com PayPal. When the first HomePod was announced, Steve and I bought one. As promised, it had beautiful sound. You know what, though? We're not huge music listeners, but, you know, it's been nice to take it out to the backyard when we have a socially distanced cocktail with a couple of friends. But that's about all we use it for. We do talk to the HomePod from time to time, asking the S-Lady questions, but she's actually a bit over-attentive. It used to be true that if you raised your wrist, your Apple Watch would take the S-Lady instructions, and all your other devices would say, okay, nope, the watch has it because they raised the wrist. This was handy because if I said, hey, S-Lady, set a timer for 30 minutes, it means I can go upstairs and the timer goes with me, either by my watch or my phone letting me know when time is up. I don't want the HomePod in the kitchen setting off the timer because then I have to stay downstairs to hear it. Heck, I've got a little timer right on the oven. I could use that if I was going to stand in the kitchen and wait for it to go off. For some reason, in an update in the last year or two, the HomePod got quite bossy and it always took over. I had to learn to press the digital crown on my watch or the side button on the iPhone instead of using the S-Lady word to initiate a timer. It's not a huge deal, but I wish they hadn't changed it. One problem with HomePod is it's kind of a personal device. Like an iPad or an iPhone, you connected it to one user's iCloud account so only one person could have anything personalized on it. Only one person's music, one person's calendar, one person's messages. In a lot of houses, there's only one geek, but you know what? We're a two-geek engineer household. This was a bit of a problem for us. At $350, it was a semi-intelligent speaker with really good sound, but not terribly shareable. 
$350 a piece for us to have each have a semi-intelligent speaker didn't make any sense. But the HomePod Mini changed the landscape entirely. At $100 each, and with some of the features announced, we thought maybe this device might be more fun for a multi-geek household. I bought one in white, and Steve bought his in black, because he buys everything in black. When they arrived, we set mine up first, and Steve second. Like many of Apple's products, the setup is really slick with HomePod. On your iPhone, you get a little scanner window, and then the HomePod makes a swirly thing on top, and the phone recognizes it and does the setup for you. The setup will ask you in which home you'd like to set up your HomePod, except it ends the sentence in a preposition, which I refuse to do. Then it asks for the room and asks you if you want to allow personal requests. This is the feature that asks, it lets you ask for your schedule and messages and, you know, that sort of personalized thing. That worked great for me. But when we went to do the same thing for Steve's HomePod, it insisted on having my account attached to it. We eventually figured out that there's only one homeowner, so only one account can set it up. We were super bummed because that was the main thing we wanted with buying two, was to be able to have personalized devices. It does turn out, though, after initially setting it up, Steve was able to change the default account on his HomePod Mini to his own, so that was great. Now, once you've started down this path, many fun things start to happen. In the Home app, if you press and hold on any HomePod, you can enable personal requests on all HomePods or just specific ones. So I have a personal, I have personal requests turned on for my HomePod Mini and for the Kitchen Big Girl HomePod, and Steve has them turned on for just his own HomePod Mini. We played around in the Home app with making a stereo pair with the HomePod's Mini, and it was easy peasy. Press and hold on either HomePod and create a new group. Then you have to decide which room they're in, which makes sense, but you don't have to actually obey it. You don't have to move them into the room, but they're in that virtual room in the home app. Finally, you choose which Apple Music and Podcasts account to use for the stereo pair. As quick as that, you've got stereo out of these adorable little spheres. By the way, the spheres are about exactly the same size as the Excel cutie I was talking about, the surge suppressor. Interestingly, after setting up the stereo pair using Steve's Apple Music account, they weren't really personal devices anymore, at least for me. But undoing the group caused them to go back to being individuals, and then we had to move my HomePod back to my den in the Home app. Only the person who groups them can ungroup them. None of this was hard, but it was kind of interesting. I have to say that my single favorite thing about the HomePod's Mini is the intercom feature. I'm sure you saw it uh, shown off at the announcement, but it's really it really works well. We have a house built in 1989 and it has a built-in intercom system, but it's fallen out of favor in this digital age. When the Apple Watch got walkie-talkie, we tried that, but it worked, what, nearly 72% of the time. <laughs> that was enough to stop using it. By enabling intercom on the HomePods, we suddenly had what I've been wanting for a long time. It's a little excessive to initiate because you have to say, hey, ass lady, and then you have to say intercom. So you could say it all together, hey, ass lady, intercom. After that, you can talk normally, though. In our case, we allowed all three HomePods to be part of the intercom, so I can't catch Steve's attention in, his, in the kitchen or in his den, and vice versa for him. But it turns out you could enable intercom on your Apple Watch and your iPhone, too. On either of those devices, you get a message on screen with a play button. So you don't just have your phone blurting things out at you like you do with walkie-talkie. You get to choose when to play those intercom messages. All three HomePods, in contrast, broadcast the message right away. And get this, you can choose to enable intercom just when you're at home 
or when you're away from home too. At first, I thought that was unnecessary, so I didn't turn it off on away from home. But then one day, I needed to know something from Steve while on my walk. So I enabled it on my watch, and I simply spoke to him and got the information I needed as he walked by a HomePod in the house. I really like Intercom on HomePod. The other thing I like about HomePods is how easy it is to fling audio from your phone to the device. You know what? Like everyone else, we have loads of Bluetooth speakers lying around, from the ones we got for free in a box of, I don't know, Cracker Jacks, to the fancy ones for which we paid. There are, the, the problem is that these are so darn fiddly if you try to change which device is sending the audio. I remember in our Acuras, we had Bluetooth, but it was so fiddly that we had to make a rule that Steve's phone had to be wired in my car and my phone had to be wired in his, or else our own phones were really hard to connect over Bluetooth. The Teslas are much better at this, but it's still extra effort to switch which phone is talking to the car because you have to connect in order to disconnect the other phone. With AirPlay, you only have to tap the AirPlay icon in whatever audio app you're using and then choose the HomePod you want and it literally just works. Now there's a bit of a delay on play pause, but it's way better than messing around with Bluetooth and disconnecting one phone to get the other one to work. I've started using the HomePod mini as a speakerphone when at my desk. And I even started using it as a nice external speaker for my Mac, using the sound preference pane to choose it from the list of AirPlay devices. I brought the HomePod Mini with me when we went to our son Kyle's house, and I used it to play podcasts while I was brushing my teeth in the morning. (laughs) I bore easily and I require entertainment constantly. I like the HomePod Mini so much that I might buy another one to keep in the bathroom at home for the same reason. Steve has a really good Bluetooth clock radio in the bathroom that he uses, but I'm always worried that I'll mess it up if I try to connect my phone. If I had a HomePod mini in there, I wouldn't have to worry about it. The final thing I like about HomePod mini happened completely by surprise. Someone rang our doorbell and the HomePod mini played a ding dong sound. Let me walk you through how that happened. Now, there is a blog post explaining this in more detail, but let me just walk through the steps. I bought a Synology disk station for my network-attached storage. I installed what's called a Docker container on the Synology. I installed an app called Hoobs into that Docker container. And Hoobs is a GUI interface around HomeBridge. I installed the Ring plugin into HomeBridge slash Hoobs. This put all of our Ring devices, like our external cameras, our security system, and our Ring video doorbell into the Home app. HomePod Mini has a setting, which is evidently on by default, that allows it to ding-dong if you have a HomeKit doorbell installed. It 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 was fabulous. It was just such a fun little surprise. The bottom line is that I'm delighted with the HomePod Mini, and now I want more of them. HomePod Mini has made our multi geek family very happy, and hopefully it will for you too. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast? You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you want to do a one-time donation like we talked about earlier, podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join our Facebook or Slack groups, it's easy. Podfeet.com slash Facebook or podfeet.com slash Slack. We welcome everybody in both places, wherever you want to be. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like SAMHSA 8 did for the first time this week, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Don't worry, Kevin will be back soon. Thanks for listening and 
and stay subscribed.